So I have always known that I would write a book someday. Well, actually, if you remember, if you remember well, I actually showed you my first published book from when I was in third grade. It was about a koala bear at a zoo. I'm a little surprised it never made it big. It was a pretty good book, <laughs> but it's fine. Uh, I have been writing. I have been writing for as long as I can remember. And while I have yet to form the actual chapters of this particular book, I've always known that one of my books would be called Around the Kitchen Table. Around the Kitchen Table is, is where some of my all-time favorite memories have come from. For some reason, and I still don't know why, the kitchen table is where my friends and I spent so much of our high school years. Katie's house had a hot tub. Bill's house had whatever video game system was available at the time and a pool table in the basement. But for some reason, the kitchen table at my house is where we spent all of our time, year after year after year. We would laugh and eat together around that table. We celebrated all kinds of things around that table, from birthdays to holidays to graduations. We'd skip school and end up around that table. That's a sermon for another day. And even as we got older, when we would come back uh, to visit when we were home on break or even after college, we would come back and sit around that table and kind of reminisce about the old days. We spent so much time around that kitchen table that when my parents moved from their house in Batavia, we uh, frantically tried to figure out a way for one of us to keep the kitchen table. At the time, none of us had a house that was big enough for it. And so we literally thought about figuring out if we could kind of cut it up and make it into something else so that we could all have a piece of the kitchen table. I know it sounds completely ridiculous, but sometimes I wonder where that kitchen table went and if somebody is still making good memories around it today. I know it's silly, but so much of my life happened around that table for my friends and I, because that's what happens around tables. While certainly not as much as in days past, the time that we spend around tables is so significant. So significant that it is the focus of our sermon for this morning. We are in week three of our series called Bless, which focuses on evangelism by helping us pay closer attention to the relationships that are in our daily lives. So the first week we talked about the letter B, which is begin with prayer. We recognize that that is where all things should begin, and our relationships are no different. Um, as I mentioned during the prayer time, we wrote down that first week on bookmarks the names of people in our lives who do not yet know God. We pray for those names, and we also pray that God would show us where he is already at work, that we would join him in the work that he is already doing. Last week, we talked about what it means to listen with care, and it was twofold. It was partially on what it means to listen to the Holy Spirit, and then partially on what it means to listen well to the people in our own lives. And so this morning we're taking a look, as Lois mentioned, at the letter E in BLESS, which stands for Eat Together. I had more than one person from our church this week remind me that our church is already very, very good at this, uh, and in many ways we definitely, definitely are. We have to be one of the last churches around that does meals together every single week. I do not take for granted the incredible gift that it is that so many of you are not only willing to come, but that so many of you have been willing to make or order or buy dinner for 35 to 50 people every single Wednesday. It's incredible, and I'm enormously, enormously grateful 
for, for the gift that that is and for all of you who helped to keep that ministry going. More on that a little bit later. So to help you frame our conversation for this morning, we're looking at a story that may seem a little strange to use when we're talking about eating together. Um, looking around the room this morning, I don't think we have any visitors, so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of you, if not all of you, know the Sunday school song about this story. What is it? hope that picked up in the recording. <laughs> that, was, that was phenomenal. That exceeded my expectations. <laughs> so you probably don't need to follow along because you know the story so well, but if you'd like to follow along, we are looking at the text that Lorna read for us a minute ago from, from Luke chapter 19. I'm not going to reread it for multiple reasons. We just heard it and you just sang it very, very well. So, <laughs> But there are a few things that we need to understand here to be able to grasp the magnitude of this story, and it is an awesome story. First of all, who was Zacchaeus? So I thought about somebody that we could maybe compare Zacchaeus to, but in all honesty, our country is so divided these days that even identifying a common enemy is a little bit of a touchy thing. And so while it might be helpful, I'm steering clear of that. It is, it is really common for pastors to liken Zacchaeus to an IRS agent. But unfortunately, that is not a good analogy either. Because assuming that the vast majority of IRS agents, while not so fun to deal with, are not themselves horribly corrupt, Zacchaeus was, big time. Zacchaeus was a tax collector at the time, and we talked about what it means to be a tax collector a long time ago when we talked about Jesus calling his disciples, because Matthew was a tax collector as well. Zacchaeus, however, was not somebody who just collected, collected taxes for the local temple, he worked for the Roman government. And he wasn't just your average Joe tax collector, he was the chief tax collector, which means that he was the overseer of many of the other tax collectors, and it also means that he was filthy rich. Here's how it worked back then. The Roman government would demand a certain amount of taxes from every particular area or territory, and it was the tax collector's job to go to their particular area or territory and make sure that the proper amount of taxes were collected and to make sure that those taxes ended up back in Rome. However, the tax collectors were not paid a salary, and they weren't even paid on commission. The way that a tax collector would earn their money back then was by collecting more from the people than the Roman government asked, and then they would line their pockets with a difference. It was an extraordinarily dishonest and corrupt system. People were literally cheated out of their hard-earned money, and then the higher up you went as a tax collector, the richer you became. As one, there's a commentary author, uh, his last name is Craddock, and he said, in a corrupt system, the loftier one's position, the greater one's complicity in that system. Something to think about. So basically, Zacchaeus was easily the most hated man around town. 
As I mentioned, he would have been crazy wealthy, and everyone around town knew that they had paid for every brick of Zacchaeus' house with their own money. He advanced and excelled by taking advantage of his neighbors, and then he had to face those people day in and day out. But for some reason, for some reason, this wealthy official was fascinated by what he had heard of this Jesus guy. It's a crazy story for a number of reasons, but when you picture an important government official, a wealthy man in an important job, your mind doesn't necessarily go to the image of him climbing a tree. But that is exactly what Zacchaeus did that day. So we obviously don't know Zacchaeus's motivation for climbing the tree other than that he wanted to see Jesus. So as we tend to do, lots of people have speculated on this, on why this wealthy government official was so interested in seeing Jesus that he climbed a tree to get a better view. So I would never condone Zacchaeus' behavior or the corrupt system of which he was a part, but given his career, can you imagine how lonely Zacchaeus must have been? You know that phrase, money can't buy happiness? I suspect that that phrase came into being because of people like Zacchaeus. I can't help but wonder if Zacchaeus had heard the comments that had been made about Jesus earlier in the Gospels when Jesus was called a friend to sinners and tax collectors. Maybe Zacchaeus wanted to see the face of someone who would hang out with tax collectors, someone like him. Maybe Zacchaeus needed a friend right about now. And he wondered if Jesus would give him the time of day. Whatever it was that motivated him that day, Zacchaeus climbed the tree. And as Jesus got close to him, he called Zacchaeus down from the tree and invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. And it is Zacchaeus' response to Jesus here that leads us to believe that Zacchaeus was more than just a little curious about Jesus as if there was something that had already been stirring in Zacchaeus' heart, as if he knew somehow that Jesus had something that he needed, because the text says that Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to see him. So the other incredibly significant thing that we have to mention here in the story is why it was such a big deal for Jesus to sit down over a meal with Zacchaeus. We know it was a big deal because the crowd around them absolutely flipped out and began grumbling about the fact that Jesus was going to eat in the home of such a sinful man. Now, we know that scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? But when the word sinful is used in stories like this one, it is communicating that the person it's talking about is someone who is known as living an intentionally sinful life. It's a certain type of person when it's talking about sinful in this context. It is worth pausing here to ask ourselves why all of these people who have been following Jesus, all of these people who knew that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, that his heart is for all people, why why weren't they happy that Jesus was going to spend time with a known sinner? 
Why could they not bring themselves to be happy for Zacchaeus, who would have the chance to encounter the Jesus that they knew healed and saved people? We need to ask ourselves this because the church continues to do this over 2,000 years later. Why, instead of being happy that people we have deemed sinners are gathering around to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, instead of being out of our minds happy that they are here, why do we grumble that Jesus shouldn't be spending time with those people? Or creating boundaries in God's house where those people aren't able to get as close to Jesus as we are. Are there people in your own life that you would be angry about if Jesus chose to go to their house for dinner instead of yours? Is it possible that Zacchaeus represents to us anyone anyone from whom we have or would withhold the gospel or entrance to the church. Something for us to think about. So we don't know what happens in Zacchaeus' home. We know that they shared a meal together because that's what happens. And we know that it changed Zacchaeus' life forever. Because this known crook suddenly shouted out that he would give up half of his possessions to the poor... And that he would not only pay back everybody he stole from, but that he would pay them back four times over. Today, salvation has come to this house, said Jesus, because he too, meaning Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. There is so much good stuff in these 10 verses. When people encounter Jesus, their life changes. When those of us who have the spirit of God within us sit down over a meal with someone else, they have the chance to encounter Jesus. And we know, we know that eating together was an incredibly enormous big deal in that culture. When you sat down with someone, it wasn't for a quick bite to eat. That didn't exist then. It was a way that you showed affection, or affirmation rather, and validation and acceptance of that person. It was an indicator that you desired a closer relationship with that person, that that person was invited into your social circle, which is why everyone was so mad that Jesus ate with Zacchaeus, because it wasn't just a quick bite to eat. It said something much more than that. And we know, even in our own culture, that eating together is incredibly valuable. According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, children who have family dinners three or more times per week are less likely to be overweight, more likely to eat healthier food, less likely to do drugs, more likely to excel academically, more likely to have healthy relationships with their parents. Really stop and think about that for a minute. Eating together or not as a family, has a lifelong effect on children and who they become as adults. Eating together has that kind of effect. It's incredible. But here's the thing, and this statistic will maybe come as no surprise, although the number might. There was a study, shown, there was a study done that showed that 60 years ago, our average meal time together, our average dinner time together, was 90 minutes. Guess what it is today? 
20? 17? 15? 12. It was 90 minutes and it is now 12. Only 36% of people say that they eat at a table. And an incredibly, an incredibly sad 21% of families said that they use mealtimes as an opportunity to chat with their family. 21%. 30% of families admitted that their families eat their meals while watching TV. Eating together was a central, vital part of Jesus' life because it was central to his desire to heal and transform people. And Jesus knew that eating together affirmed the other person's worth and value. Gathering at the table was so important to Jesus that as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to the disciples about his forthcoming death, he did not give them a theory, he gave them a meal. This still holds true today, except we went from 90-minute meals together to 12-minute meals in front of the TV. We have sacrificed a slow, meaningful meal together for what? Convenience, fast food, and jam-packed schedules? There's a pastor by the name of Barry, Barry Jones, and he said of eating together that one of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to recover in the kind of world we live in is the spiritual discipline of table fellowship. Have you ever thought of eating together as a spiritual discipline? What would happen if you did? What would happen if you did start to see eating together as a spiritual discipline? Four years ago when we started community night, we knew that it had to center around a meal. Why? Because we know that what happens around the table is powerful. When people sit and eat together, they don't just break bread and share bread together, they share life. It starts simple, asking questions about your day and your job and maybe a little about your family. As you get to know people more and more, the conversation around the table hopefully becomes easier and hopefully becomes more meaningful. Eating together usually does not have an agenda and it isn't a program. It's a chance to connect with one another in a way that nothing else allows us to. We have seen how substantial it has been for our own community here at Hillcrest, but where else can the spiritual discipline be applied to our lives? When you think about the names that you wrote down on your bookmarks a couple of weeks ago, I wonder if you can stop and think about a time that you shared a meal with any of them. If they are family members, do you share meals beyond the obligatory family holidays? Do you invite them to be a part of your life, not just your family? If the names you wrote down are friends or neighbors or coworkers, can you picture yourself inviting them into your space to sit around your table? Can you push past the awkward, the fears of awkward moments and, and those moments that happen in new conversations where there's kind of a quiet lull? Can you push past that and instead learn to see this opportunity as a spiritual discipline. Because here's the other thing. Eventually, hopefully, surface-level conversation becomes too difficult to maintain when you are gathered around a table consistently 
at some point, and little hint, it may take more than one shared meal, but at some point, if you create the space, you will find that people in your life desperately need it. Because the table, if we let it, can also be a place of brokenness. Here's what I mean by that. In ancient culture, gathering around a table for a meal, as I mentioned, was, was affirmation of a person's value and worth. I think that that can still hold true today. If we are willing to do the work of creating authentic, non-judgmental space for people, I think we can create the same thing. Jones was speaking about this using a text from the Gospel of John, and he says that after a night of fishing, the disciples encounter Jesus who calls them out from the boat to the shore. Acting impulsively, as always, Peter dives into the water, fully clothed, in an effort to get close to Jesus. As he emerges from the sea, dripping wet, he moves toward Jesus, who has made a fire on the beach. And at that moment, at that moment, he smells a hauntingly familiar smell. The word that John, the storyteller, uses to describe the fire that Jesus has made only occurs in Scripture one other time earlier in John's own story. There, the word is used of fire where Peter and the others warmed themselves the night of Jesus' arrest and trial. The charcoal fire of John 18, 18 was the place of Peter's denial. For Peter, shame had a smell, that of burning charcoal, But where the charcoal fire of John 18 was the place of Peter's denial, the charcoal of John 21 is the place of Peter's restoration. The simple invitation of Jesus to his friends is this, come and have breakfast. John goes on to say here that the table, or Jones, excuse me, goes on to say here that the table is the place where broken sinners find connection and belonging. Despite our best intentions, we all, like Peter, stumble after Jesus. We desperately need people who will journey with us in our stumbling. I love what he says there because I absolutely believe that it is at the heart of why eating together is so important. We are all stumbling after Jesus. Those of us who have been stumbling a little longer have the responsibility and the privilege of journeying with those who are out there stumbling without Jesus. Not because we are better, but because we know what it means to be redeemed and transformed by Jesus Christ. And we desire that same freedom and hope for those that we know and love. In our Zacchaeus passage, when when Jesus calls Zacchaeus out of the tree, Jesus says, I must Stay at your house. Must is the Greek word day. And Jesus is saying that it is absolutely necessary that he come and stay at Zacchaeus' home. It is necessary because it is Jesus' purpose and mission on earth to seek and find everyone. All of, it's, it's his purpose and mission to find all of those people that everyone else has given up on and lead them to the Lord. So look around you. Who in your life have other people given up on? Who in your life has given up on themselves? Who do you know 
that is stumbling through life without the hope of Christ? Whose life and worth might you be able to affirm and validate simply by inviting them into your space to share a meal? Jesus called Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham, which communicated to Zacchaeus that Jesus sees him as he is, and he accepts him and welcomes him anyway. In a culture that is constantly trying to draw dividing lines between who is in and who is out, we have a clear example here and throughout the scriptures of a Christ who tears down the walls which divide us a Jesus who calls us forth out of tombs and out of trees so that we can be near to him so that he can transform us. If you have a kitchen table at your home, you have what is probably the most powerful tool that we have to create space for people to feel accepted and loved. People who might not ever walk through the doors of a church but who will and can encounter the living God because you have created space for them. I know that we are all busy, and I know that our lives are full. But we were reminded again this week just how short life can be. We have to start making other people a priority in our lives. We have to give up our need to be busy so that we can make time for others to feel seen. Begin with prayer. Listen with care. And if necessary, build a longer table. Let's pray. Lord, of all the things that sometimes feel a little cloudy or hard to understand in Scripture, this is very clear that you gathered around tables that this was a significant part of your life and your mission on this earth to gather people around tables. God, we seem to have lost that in this culture. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to evaluate our priorities. God, I know for myself that I I have put my own privacy as a priority above welcoming other people into my home. And so, God, I ask for your forgiveness in that. Challenge us this morning, Lord. Encourage us this morning. I know that we can do more, and I know that we can be better. Help us, as we have prayed the last couple of weeks, to open our eyes to the people around us. That you would give us, God, a sense of urgency for the people in our lives. Not that it is our job to save them, but that you have given us the opportunity to create space where they can encounter you and you, Lord, and you alone can transform them and transform us. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for the example that you were to us of what it looks like to welcome. May we follow in your footsteps, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.